1: More than 40% of people in their 40s and 50s have both an aging parent and a child under the age of 21. Caring for people in multiple generations demands time, love, attention, and more. Welcome to Caught Between Generations with your host, Dr. Meryl Griff. Our program will bring you the information you need as a family caregiver for everyone for whom you care, with guest experts and resources to help you keep sane and organized. Now, here is Dr. Merrill Griff.
2: Welcome to Caught Between Generations. you know, as a caregiver for my mother in my own home following her stroke and as a wife and a mother and a grandmother, I know how exhausted and overwhelmed and stressed you feel sometimes. I mean, you give so much to others. I want this show to give back to you by providing resources and information that will make your life easier. I don't want you to feel so alone. Caregivers need to support each other, and I hope that you will feel comforted as we talk and we share stories and we gain great information from our guests. So today's show deals with sleep, very important for caregivers. We'll be talking to Dr. Lisa Meltzer about sleep problems in children and adolescents, and then to Dr. Stephanie Silberman about sleep disorders in adults, we're all about problems that occur throughout the life cycle or in court between generations. This is your one-stop shop for information for all the people in the life for which you care. Discussions about sleep problems, especially when dealing with children, usually deal with behavioral problems. So this usually means getting kids to go to sleep at night, and then you have to get them up in the morning on time. The goal is usually to find a way to do what? hmm, let's talk honestly to each other. The goal is usually to find a way to stop screaming. And so I admit, that was my house. There I was. You start out really nice. Good night, go to sleep, pleasant dreams. And the next thing you know, you're standing at the bottom of the steps, screaming up, go to sleep already. And then you turn into one of your parents, Don't make me come up there. And then the same thing happens in the morning. Get up. You're going to be late. You'll miss the bus. And then your parent appears again. Don't make me come up there. If you miss that bus, I'm not going to drive you to school no matter how much snow there is on the ground. However, in this episode, we will be discussing aspects of sleep and children that are not usually discussed. This is not going to be a discussion about behavioral management. We're going to talk about what are the actual sleep needs for children and adolescents. What's the relationship between emotional problems, substance abuse, and risk-taking behaviors and insufficient sleep? If your teenager is suffering with this type of problem, how do you change it? With us is Dr. Lisa Meltzer, who is an associate professor of family medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and is the co-author of Pediatric Sleep Problems, A Clinician's Guide to Behavioral Interventions. Welcome to the show, Dr. Meltzer. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. So, Dr. Meltzer, what really are the normal hours of sleep that one would expect for children?
3: It ranges depending on the age of the child. So an infant or toddler could be anywhere from 12 to 15 hours. A school-aged child could be 10 to 11 hours. Adolescents, eight and a half to nine and a half hours. But every child has an individual sleep need just as every adult does. And so not every child fits within that range per se. Some may need a little less. Some may need a little more. But there are definitely certain signs to look for in a child to make sure that they are getting enough sleep.
2: So what are those signs that would make me think my child's not getting enough sleep?
3: So if you have to be waking your child up, and really waking them up and dragging them out of bed. You know, it takes most children five ten minutes to get up, get going. They may not be pleasant, but they're moving. So if you're really having to wake them up and drag them out of bed, that's a sign that they're not getting enough sleep, that their sleep night is not over. Um, If they're sleeping an extra two or more hours on the weekends, that's a sign of them trying to catch up on their sleep. If they fall asleep in inappropriate places, so school-age children should not be falling asleep in school. Um, Children should not be falling asleep at sporting events or other fun activities. That, again, is just a sign of not getting enough sleep. But most parents can easily tell if their child's getting enough sleep because following a night of poor sleep or not enough sleep, I will often ask parents, the next day after that bad night, What do you notice about your child? And they will come up with a long list of words that usually starts with irritable, grouchy. For younger children, it may be hyperactive, incorrigible, you know, not getting along, lots of those types of things. And so parents can easily see in their children when they're not getting enough sleep.
2: So let's talk about teenagers for a minute. What do you think are the causes of sleep disorders in adolescents? Um,
3: the number one problem we see in adolescence is insufficient sleep or not getting enough sleep. And this is caused for, by a number of reasons. There's um, biological changes in adolescent sleep. So we all have these internal clocks, and our internal clocks help us to stay on schedule, and we use meals and routines and all of these things. And you notice your internal clock if you travel across a time zone or daylight savings. Now, our internal clocks are most strongly regulated by light and dark. So when it gets dark in the afternoon, that darkness goes through the eyes, cues the brain to make melatonin. And melatonin is a naturally produced hormone. We all make it. It doesn't make us sleepy per se. It just tells our body in a few hours you want to be sleeping. One of the things that happens with adolescents though is as they go through puberty, all hormones change, including melatonin. Excuse me. And so the timing of melatonin moves later by about one to two hours, which makes it hard for this adolescent to fall asleep early. So a child who once fell asleep quite easily at 8 or 9 o'clock now has a hard time falling asleep before 10 or 11 o'clock and sometimes even later. And then you add on top of that homework, extracurricular activities, and then social media and technology. So that interferes with a teenager's ability to fall asleep. And then on the flip side of that, early school start times. Our high schoolers start the earliest. Um, The national average is somewhere between 7.30 and 8, but um, my nephews go to a school that starts at 7.05 in the morning. And those early school start times are asking adolescents to wake up at a time when their brain is physiologically asleep. Sometimes they get behind the wheel of a car, which is a very scary thought, and they go to school and are asked to learn at a time when they should be sleeping. Those first one, two, three period classes are really difficult for adolescents.
2: It's very interesting. I never realized that actually that internal clock for adolescents changes when when they get to a certain point which is, I guess, at puberty. So what happens then on weekends and on vacations? How much of an impact does that have then?
3: Yeah, so we there's this phenomenon called social jet lag. I didn't make that name up, but um, published studies talking about this. And it's really important to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. Otherwise, you end up with the social jet lag. And Um, How I explain it to adolescents is, you know, Friday night, let's say I live on the East Coast, on the Eastern time zone, and Friday afternoon I fly across the country to the west coast, which is three hours behind, and I land there at eight o'clock and my friends say, Let's go out to dinner, and I say, sure, it's only eight o'clock. But back home it's eleven o'clock when I should normally be going to bed, right? And We only stay up until 11 o'clock on the West Coast, but that's 2 o'clock back home. And same thing on Saturday morning, we wake up at 8 a.m., which is 11 o'clock back home. And same thing Saturday night, Sunday morning, I hop on the plane and I fly east again. And Sunday night at 11 o'clock, I'm not sleepy because it really only takes a couple of days to completely change your internal clock. So we have these adolescents who are trying to catch up on their sleep, but sleep in really late on the weekends. And then they can't fall asleep on Sunday night. And so they're really miserable Monday morning, Tuesday's a terrible day, Wednesday's a little wacky because it only takes two or three days to get back on track, Thursday's a good day, and by Friday, everything's good except for Friday night they stay up late and sleep in on Saturday. So it becomes this cycle every weekend of basically flying back and forth across the country.
2: It's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, so should you encourage teenagers, in fact, anyone actually, to try to keep to their regular sleep schedule as much as possible?
3: Absolutely. It's the number one rule of healthy sleep habits is go to bed and wake up at the same time. Um, It makes such a huge difference no matter how young or old you are to follow that consistent sleep schedule. You will fall asleep faster and easier. You will wake up more naturally, maybe even without that alarm clock. And it really helps to keep everything on track. Now, again, for adolescents, sometimes that's hard because they have to wake up so early during the week. So what I'll often tell teens and their parents is if you're going to have a late night, Friday night's a good night to have the late night, sleep in on Saturday, but come Sunday morning, I tell parents, wake them up. I don't care what the reason is, but get them up so that they have that day to get start getting back on track.
2: Interesting. Do you think that the heavy schedule that we give our kids with a lot, a lot of structured activities, does that impact the sleep cycle at all or it really doesn't have an effect?
3: I think it has a huge effect, I think. We ask our teens to be involved in a number of extracurricular activities. They often have part-time jobs, and they're taking these huge academic loads. So I think the pressure to be involved with all of this and still get good grades really takes a toll on them. These teens are staying up really late because by the time they get home from everything and they have to eat dinner and take a shower and do their homework – then they need wind-down time, and so by the time they fall asleep, it's only a few hours until we ask them to wake up and get going again. And insufficient sleep really takes a hit on every aspect of performance. So academic performance, the ability to learn, to pay attention, um, is negatively affected when you don't get enough sleep. Athletic performance is actually impacted. So these teens who are trying to be really strong athletes would probably do better if they got more sleep. Um, Social interactions are more challenging when you haven't slept enough. Mood is really impacted. So I think, you know, we want for our children the best and I think there's this immense pressure to be involved with everything. But when people come to my clinic, it's one thing that I tell parents and their kids to really think about is what's the priority here and what baby has to go by the wayside in order to increase your sleep.
2: We're talking to Dr. Lisa Meltzer. When we return, we'll be discussing the relationship between lack of sleep and some very serious problems that teenagers experience, including drug use, alcoholism, suicide, and depression. Whether you have children, grandchildren, or young family members, this is really important. So stay with us. Don't make me come out there and get you.
0: life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities in health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities at home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at SarahCare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-Care.com.
0: self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: This is Dr. Merrill, and we're talking with Dr. Lisa Meltzer, who is an associate professor at National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado. And we've been talking about sleep disorders in children and adolescents. Dr. Meltzer, what's the relationship between sleep disorders and depression and anxiety in adolescents?
3: There's a very strong relationship. So... Um, In children, adolescents, even into adulthood, it's sort of a bi-directional relationship. So sleep problems are one of the diagnostic criteria that mental health professionals use for things like depression, and then it's one of the outcomes of this disorder. So troubles falling asleep, troubles staying asleep, Um, sometimes they sleep too much, especially in the case of depression. For children who are anxious, it's very hard to fall asleep because Nighttime is a time when you're laying very quietly, and it's a perfect time for thinking. And for people who are anxious, sometimes that um, uninterrupted thinking time can make them even more anxious, which makes them harder to fall asleep. And then the problem is is when you don't sleep well or you don't sleep enough, anxious symptoms during the day are increased, and mood symptoms in the case of depression are also um, harder to manage.
2: You know, I think many parents, especially of teenage girls, feel as though The depression is a direct cause of the hormone imbalance, and they don't. I don't think think about the fact that it may be due to a lack of sleep.
3: Yeah, I think we need a lot more research in this area. But you know, adolescence has always been this age of you know stress and and moodiness and irritability, and honestly, those are some of the side effects you see when you don't get enough sleep. So, if we were able to increase sleep duration in adolescence, would we see? Some of that moodiness and irritability decrease and quite possibly, I mean, they are still adolescents and hormones do take a hit on that, but um, it is quite possible with some increased sleep duration that you may see some of those things improve.
2: Actually, sometimes I used to tell parents maybe you as a parent need more sleep and then you could deal with the irritability of your teenager a little bit more. So,
3: Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good point. And I think that's a point, I mean, we're mostly talking about adolescence, but also for younger children and school-age children, that ability to be patient um, you were saying, you know, shouting up at the stairs. Go back to bed, right? It's hard to be patient at bedtime when you yourself are tired, right? You lose that ability to regulate your own emotions, um, and that can create this very negative interaction between parents and teens.
2: So let's talk about risky behavior, because in your material, um, you quoted a research study that said adolescents and young adults are involved in 55% of car accidents, which are caused by falling asleep at the wheel. I had not Mm -hmm. realized that that number was so high.
3: Yeah, it's very high. You take um, adolescents, young adults who already are inexperienced, right? They don't have the skills and the practice to respond quickly to something that happens. Um, they're inexperienced. They haven't practiced a lot. They're tired. We talked about in the morning. We know that car accidents increase um, in youth in the morning with early school t- start times, uh, but also just sort of that judgment piece, right? That ability to make good decisions while they're driving um, and, You know, we talk a lot about sort of the safeties with driving in terms of not texting, not being on the phone, all of those things. And some of those judgments are clouded when you haven't slept enough and you become more likely to increase your risk-taking behaviors.
2: The other thing you mentioned in your writings were the correlation between insufficient sleep and substance abuse. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: You know, I think it just sort of goes across behaviors, and again, when making good decisions um, and being in in a good mood and in a good place and being able to resist peer pressure, I mean, there's a number of factors that go into an adolescent's decision to use and or abuse
2: substances,
3: and many of those factors, again, can become clouded or diminished when an adolescent is not getting enough sleep.
2: So what are the similar types of problems you might see in younger children and as a result of not getting enough sleep?
3: So I think um, that learning, that ability to pay attention in a classroom, really important. There's been studies done where you have youth go to bed just an hour later for four or five nights, and by the end of the week, their teachers are reporting them with poor concentration, inability to sit still, other like more neurocognitive tests we call them, short-term memory, reaction time, fine motor skills, those things you really need to be successful in the classroom, those things are diminished just by losing three or four hours of sleep a week. So it does not take a lot to really see an impact on a child's ability to function in the classroom. I think behavior is another area. So I mentioned younger children get actually hyper when they're tired. I have a six-year-old son, and when he gets tired, he starts doing laps around the house, laughing like a maniac, right? And parents will say to me, Lisa, there's no way he's tired. But my son, when he starts to do that, he's trying to keep himself awake, and that hyperactivity is that sign of overtired. So I think sometimes parents mistake that as a sign of not being sleepy. Um, So I think the mood stuff is also seen not necessarily to the same degree as in teens, um, but all sorts of aspects of functioning are impacted by not enough sleep.
2: So what are we to do as parents? I mean, your child's running around the house, mine is jumping up and down on the bed. Um, Mm -hmm. We're all trying to stay calm. Um, You know, teenagers have a mind of their own and, you know, they want to tell you how independent they are. So what do you suggest are interventions that might help?
3: I think families need to make sleep a priority. I I don't think it's that parents need to make their children sleep. I think it's that parents and their children need to get on better sleep schedules. So as I said, going to bed, waking up at the same time every day, having that consistency, that predictability, really important. I think having bedrooms, we always have recommended cool, dark, and comfortable. That's obvious, but I think bedrooms need to be technology-free, and this is no longer just get the television set out of the bedroom, but this is getting the phones and the tablets and the video games. All of it has to be out of the bedroom. We know that children and adults who have technology in their bedroom sleep on average about 30 minutes less per night, and by the end of the school week, that's two and a half hours of sleep loss, which, again, can impact functioning. The problem is... is When a child sees a parent on their phone in their bed or watching TV in their bed, the child thinks, why can't I do that as well? And so it creates a lot of conflict between parents and especially adolescents when do as I say but not as I do. So having a charging, a central charging station like in the kitchen, everybody's technology goes to the kitchen to sleep. And then parents and children, everybody are sleeping better. I think caffeine is the third part of that as well. Really, children especially should not be drinking caffeine. Adolescents should use caffeine carefully, perhaps in the morning, to help them become more alert since they have to be at school so early. But being cautious when you're drinking caffeine at dinner time, that's going to make it very difficult to fall asleep at bedtime. So really getting rid of, as much as possible, caffeine from both a parent and a child's perspective.
2: You know, I think caffeine, though, is is interesting because, for instance, I went through a period actually a couple of months ago um, where suddenly I couldn't sleep. I didn't know what was going on. I just couldn't fall asleep. And then it dawned on me that I had begun drinking a brand of tea that I had never drank before. You know, it was iced tea, and I was drinking it at night. And then right. when I when I looked it up, I, I I was like, oh my gosh, the amount of caffeine in this. And actually, I don't. I drink everything decaf, so for me, having that caffeine suddenly was like a shot. I just couldn't go to sleep. Um, so I think that there are many foods and many beverages that we don't even think have caffeine. I think we always think coffee, but I don't think we think about other things.
3: No, caffeine is so widely available now, and especially it's marketed at the youth. So, again, the things, iced tea is one that parents often don't think about. There are several sodas parents don't think about. SunKissed orange soda. SunKissed will brighten your day is how I remember. That one has as much caffeine as a Coke. <laughs> oh, um, Bark's root beer has a bite. So Bark's root beer has caffeine in it. parents often think root beer is all caffeine-free. Um Mountain Dew has a juice beverage, and they market it as a juice beverage called Kickstart that has 70-something milligrams of caffeine in it, which is, again, more than almost like two cans of Coca-Cola. And so there's these products out there. You can get caffeine in water. You can get it in chewing gum. You can get it in candy bars. You can get it in maple syrup. I mean, there's so many products out there, and it's easily available for kids. And if parents aren't necessarily aware of it, it can definitely be having an impact on sleep.
2: Okay, so I have to ask you this. You can have caffeine in chewing gum?
3: Really? Yes. Uh, I believe it was created by the U.S. military as a quick way to get caffeine into um, soldiers, right, for that burst of energy. Um, but you can get, I believe Jolt is one of the brands. I can't remember, but you can, you can buy caffeinated chewing gum.
2: Wow. Okay, I had no yeah. idea. <laughs> Dr. Meltzer, this, is, this has been very informative. Um, are there any last thoughts that you want to share with us?
3: No, I just I appreciate you bringing this um, uh, topic for attention for families, for parents. Again, sleep is so important for everybody, and you'll hear more about it on the adult side, but like you talk about in everything else, when you're caught between parents and children, really making sure um, being getting enough sleep yourself um, will make things a little bit easier um, when that's going on.
2: So if people wanted more information um, about sleep disorder in children and adolescents, where would you suggest they look for that? I think one of our
3: best resources is the National Sleep Foundation. Um, I believe their website is www.sleepfoundation.org, and they have a bunch of information on there about different ages, about different sleep disorders, about recommendations for healthy sleep habits. Um, It's a great single stop um, of resource information.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Meltzer. This was very, very interesting, and you gave us some great tips. I really appreciate that, and I'm sure so do the listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. When we return from the break, we'll be discussing the problem of insomnia in adults. So do you find yourself sitting in front of the television feeling very tired, but the moment your head hits the pillow, you're wide awake? Or do you find yourself falling asleep really quickly, but then you get up at 3 or 4 in the morning and you cannot fall back asleep? These are problems very common in adults. So stay with us. Don't fall asleep. We'll be right back after this next break.
0: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where's your dad? What's he doing? You'd know if he was at Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities. You'd know he's enjoying a full day of cooking, computers, yoga, golfing, and he's home by dinner. You'd know Sarah Care LPN and RN Nursing Care is with him to ensure he gets the right medications at the right dosages. You'd know. How's your dad? He's just fine. At Sarah Care Daytime Senior Care and Activities, call 330-451-6108 for one free day of care at Sarah Care.
1: We are surrounded by crises, domestic violence, mental health issues, rape, suicide. Often, we feel alone if we are dealing with these issues ourselves, or we feel powerless to help others who are dealing with them. You don't have to feel alone. Listen for The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope with Jessica Piro. The show is an open forum to share and get advice from others and guest experts and begin or continue the healing process. Listen live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness.
4: Do you feel that you aren't at your best when it comes to your personal health? Even if your doctor gives you a clean bill of health,
2: Welcome back to Court Between Generations. I'm Dr. Merrill, and we are here with Dr. Stephanie Silberman, who is a licensed psychologist and sleep medicine specialist. She is the author of The Insomnia Workbook, a comprehensive guide to getting the sleep you need, and I will tell you that I've read the book cover from cover, and it is, it is a very, very good book, so I highly recommend it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Silberman. Thank you very much for having me. So how serious really is insomnia with today's adults? Is it a serious problem?
4: It is. It's a very big problem. It's estimated about one in three adults experience insomnia, which is really meaning either trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, or both. So at some point, let's say across a month, one in three adults will experience several and it really can become chronic quite easily.
2: So I've been waiting for you to come on the show because I wanted to ask you this question because I know a lot of people who take over-the-counter sleeping aids such as Tylenol PM, Advil PM, all those types of things. I mean, what's your opinion about that? And, and are they really non-habit-forming?
4: No, they are not. Um, not habit-forming, because they do cause dependency, in other words. Um, I see patients on a daily basis that come in saying, well, I just take Benadryl or I just take Tylenol PM, but they end up taking very high doses of it because it doesn't work any longer at the recommended dosage. And um, it's still, they're taking it, you know, for the side effect of causing sleepiness. So they do cause dependency. It's not... Considered a first line treatment for insomnia that really should be cognitive behavioral in nature and not include any uh, medication, whether it be prescribed or over the counter.
2: So that would exclude herbals also? Yes. The problem with herbal medication
4: is, first of all, it's not regulated by the FDA in this country. So we have very little way of knowing the purity of what we're getting. We go and purchase valerian root or kava kava. Um, Even melatonin can be tricky um, to get to know that you're getting exactly what it says on the bottle. And in addition, people should be able to fall asleep without having to take anything. By putting by any kind of substance into the body, whether it be prescribed, over-the-counter, or herbal, we're now giving the power to something else, a substance to what I need in order to fall asleep, rather than knowing that there are many changes that can be made within a person, oftentimes quite difficult, but that sleep can be achieved without any of that.
2: So that eliminates my grandmother's warm milk and <laughs> that tea. I love that tea. It's got that little bear, you know, and he looks so sleepy and happy and, you know, it's called slumber time tea. Things
4: like that are just calming and soothing. They're really not sedating in nature, but they're nice. You can, it's still fine and people have um, sleep time routines that they like, so there's nothing wrong with having that if a person finds it comforting. It's certainly on a different level when someone is needing it every single night in order to fall asleep.
2: So I'm going to ask you the same question I asked, Dr. Meltzer. We talked about symptoms of sleep deprivation um, in children and adolescents. How would I, as an adult, know that I'm sleep-deprived, or how would I recognize the symptoms in another adult? So sleep
4: deprivation really varies across... Um, the adult population, and it's very different in children and adolescents, as you just spoke about. It tends to have quite opposite reactions, oftentimes in kids. But what we see in adults is, you know, increased yawning, perhaps irritability and frustration. Um, You know, someone says something to you and you're immediately much more short-tempered with them um, and that's really not the type of person that you are. So mood is greatly affected and a lot of times depressive symptoms can result. Certainly anxiety is a part of it. So those kinds of features are often resulting in a person when they are sleeping deprived. And, um, you know, other things you might see is just just typical uh, ways that we show that we're sleepy, which would be, um, you know, falling asleep at the movies or, um, you know, not able to stay up even in a reasonable hour with friends at dinner. I mean, this happens to people when they're truly very sleep deprived.
2: So one of the things you mentioned as a good intervention is cognitive behavioral therapy. Can you explain that to us? What is that?
4: So it's really targeting two different areas. The behaviors surrounding um, good sleep is one component. So things like you've already discussed um, in the prior segment about caffeine intake or um, not exercising too late at night. Things like not reading or watching TV in bed or not being on electronics late at night. These are all part of the behavioral component. In addition, one very big component of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is not remaining in the bed when you're not sleeping. And that's something that um, many people find That they do the opposite. They start having difficulty sleeping, so they decide to go to bed a little bit earlier and then, you know, stay in bed longer because they're just trying to get that certain amount of sleep, but it actually works in a counterproductive way because now the person is lying in bed wide awake. And so that's part of the behavioral component is getting the person to get up out of bed when they're not able to sleep or only getting into the bed in the first place when they're very sleepy. So that's the behavioral. And then the more cognitive component is that usually there's a lot of anxiety associated with not sleeping. Now, you can have underlying anxiety about other things going on, let's say stressors at work or family or finances, really anything. Um, But then there's a lot of people who just have anxiety about their sleep. Once they've developed a sleep problem, all they focus on all day long is their inability to sleep. And it's, you know, five o'clock at night and they've got hours before they're going to go to bed, but they're already working themselves up thinking, um, how's my night going to be? Is it going to be really good or is it going to be a horrible night? Am I going to be tossing and turning? How am I going to feel the next day? So all of these things are addressed in the cognitive component about how to decrease anxiety, how to address dysfunctional types of thinking that lead to um, poor sleep. So all of that is involved in the cognitive behavioral treatment. So,
2: so let's say that I'm interested in this and I feel as though I would benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, how do I find someone who practices that? Great question.
4: <laughs> so first of all, it's really important to try to find someone who does CBT and has a specialization in sleep. Now, for example, um, my background is that I'm board certified in sleep medicine. So people can go and look on the American Academy of Sleep Medicine website and the American Board of Sleep Medicine, and they can look for a provider who is a psychologist and um, someone who is um, boarded in sleep medicine. They're going to know that they have the specialty. Certainly, um, even in people that maybe didn't go all the way and get the board certification, they might... It's a lot of time working in sleep, but you definitely want to go to someone that has the sleep experience along with the CBT, because there are a lot of other sleep disorders, and insomnia sometimes can just be a symptom of something else, and it would be a shame not to have that diagnosed.
2: So are there any apps, I mean, we live in a world of apps that you can recommend to help with sleep? well there are a lot
4: of different apps now that are available and it really depends on what you're looking for some of them are um, trying to track the amount of sleep and you know just even going to the different newspapers different news sites they're always um, testing them and keeping track and so there's ones like there's one for example called neuroon that's very extensive. it's tracking the EEG it's tracking muscle tension it's tracking eye movement um, there's another one called LARC, and it's using low-power sensors that are going in and, again, tracking how much sleep the person's getting. And then other ones involve a more interactive process. And, for example, I have a sleep app, and it's called Sleep Advisor. There are other ones very similar out there. Um, But in my sleep app, what we do is the person has to go in, and they individually are inputting information about their sleep. And then um, if they put in something like caffeine, and let's say it's in the evening hour, a little alert is going to come up, and it's going to say, you really shouldn't have caffeine within 12 hours of bedtime. And so there's all kinds of alerts that are put into place to try to help the person learn more about uh, ways they could achieve better sleep in addition to just, you know, inputting the amount of time they're sleeping each
2: night. And then you would just download those apps from iTunes? They're available
4: on Android and iTunes, yep. Okay,
2: all right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So are there any other short tips that you can give us about, you know, things that would help you fall asleep initially in the night? Tips to help fall asleep. Well, I mean
4: certainly it's it's always good to get into bed when you're sleepy and not to get into bed because it's a certain time. Um, especially this is for someone who's having trouble sleeping. So they're already in a situation where they're more um anxiety ridden at night. So to make sure they're in a very calm place for like the hour or so or before bedtime, it's a good idea not to have any electronics. Um, I recommend people not to be reading on iPads or tablets because Um, Really, the light that they are getting at night um, can make it difficult to fall asleep. And um, people can wear things like blue blockers, uh, sunglasses that they make that can help get rid of those um, blue lights. And, um, you know, just to do things that are calming and soothing. Maybe Mm. practice some deep breathing, some relaxation exercises.
2: Those Um, are... Those are great suggestions. We're, we're discussing sleep problems in adults with Dr. Stephanie Silberman. When we return from the break, we'll be talking more about specific do's and don'ts. And maybe you'll find something that you're doing that you didn't even realize is keeping you up at night um, that will help you with your sleep problems. We're also going to talk more about what happens when you fall asleep very quickly, but then you're up at 3 or 4 in the morning, and you can't go back to sleep and some very other common sleep problems. So stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: At SarahCare, we provide daytime activities in health-related care for seniors who need assistance and support during the day. It is 101 activities and home by dinner. While we pride ourselves on the quality of our care, the Sarah Care Way sees beyond your loved one's needs to understand them as a unique individual. We care for individuals with chronic diseases, memory loss, stroke, Parkinson's disease, or those who may be feeling depressed and isolated. Our program is designed to encourage seniors to remain involved in activities of their choice, customized to meet their interests and abilities. Our outings include lunch at favorite restaurants and trips to the movies, concerts, or shopping at a cost that is less than five hours of in-home care. Your family member can attend one of our centers all day and be cared for by professional nurses and activity assistants. Transportation and financial assistance is available. Call 1-800-472-5544 today to learn how Sarah Care can help or visit us on the web at sarahcare.com. That's S-A-R-A-H care.com.
0: Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
2: Welcome back to Court Between Generations. This is Dr. Merle, and I'm with Dr. Stephanie Silberman, and we're having a great conversation about the problems of falling asleep and insomnia in adults. However, we're now going to talk about some other types of sleep problems that adults have. So, Dr. Silberman, one of the things we discussed during the break is what happens when people are able to fall asleep. That's not their problem, but then they're up in the middle of the night, and That's it. It's like they're done. They can't go back to sleep, and then they're really exhausted the next day.
4: Yeah. So,
2: those people
4: tend to stay in the bed in general, Um, they will stay in the bed because they're trying to fall back asleep, they know it's too early to get up for the day, but what ends up happening is they might have a little bit of micro-sleep here or there. That could only be a few seconds, maybe a few minutes. They're not even aware of it. It's certainly not a deep restorative sleep that happens. So, it really is recommended once again, to get up out of the bed. And that is extremely difficult if it's three or four in the morning. But what happens is if a person can get up at that time, they're really unable to fall back asleep after, let's say, about 15, 20 minutes, and get up, go in another room, You know, perhaps try to do something either boring or relaxing. If they're able to fall back asleep and get back in the bed, great. If not, they need to stay up and not take any naps during the day and it is most likely that the next night will be a little bit better. It's cumulative and that's what ends up happening because usually for those people that wake up during the night, they end up having two different segments of sleep. So they might fall asleep, let's say at 11 o'clock and they sleep until three and then they have a couple of hours in the middle of the night where they're very and they're awake, but then they do eventually fall back asleep, and it's usually right before they're going to have to get up for the day. So they might fall back asleep at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and sleep till 7. So it's been broken up. It's not as good quality of sleep when that happens. So it's really about getting up out of the bed, not remaining there when you can't sleep, and then over time what happens is that sleep is going to become more consolidated get into bed, they'll sleep for longer periods of time if they don't allow themselves to remain in the bed.
2: So actually, I hadn't thought about this, but I do have a little personal trick that I can pass on that I've used when I get up in the middle of the night. And I say to myself, all right, Meryl, well, if you're going to be up, you might as well make this time productive. And I make a list of all the household tasks I need to get done, like the laundry and cleaning the oven and a few other things. It's amazing how tired I get. I suddenly become like so exhausted. you know. (laughs) I I just have to go back to sleep. The thought of doing that. The
4: other thing I could add to that. That's a very good point because you're also getting out of your mind that list of all the things you have to do. And so what happens is a lot of people, when they do wake up in the middle of the night, they're suddenly worrying and thinking about everything. So in order to make it easier to fall back asleep, um, it would be a great idea to set aside time during the day. I call it worry time, where they can actually write down the things that tend to come into their mind at night. So try to predict what it is and then What are they doing about it? And so that already will give a little bit of a sense of relief. Now they're in the bed, they wake up, they start thinking about it. Oh, yeah, I've already addressed that. I put it down on paper. Things, you know, they certainly can try and do some relaxation exercises, some guided imagery, um, even mental exercises like um, counting up by um, threes or counting up by sevens, things that are just a way to occupy their mind but not um, to be focused on what's causing them to be awake at that moment.
2: You know, one of the things that I see frequently at my Sarah Care centers is the problem with sundowning um, yeah. and people who have Alzheimer's disease. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and and what is really going on with someone who has dementia?
4: Yeah, so it's believed That It's not 100% clear as to what causes sundowning, but it is believed that it has something to do with the circadian rhythm or the inner biological clock being off somehow in people that have Alzheimer's, dementia. And so what happens is in the evening hours, when it's starting to get dark, they feel disoriented because their clock is not in that place yet. And so, um, they may look disoriented, they may look suspicious, irritable, restless, get very agitated and upset. Um, You may see them start yelling, um, you know, pacing around. These are all things that are quite common um, to see when someone is sundowning. And, um, you know, some things that might trigger it would be, again, that, there's less light at nighttime, and they may not always be able to be separating what's reality and what's not at that point. So it can be very frustrating for the individual and, of course, for any caregiver who's around them.
2: So does the light therapy that sometimes is recommended, do you think that has an, an impact on people who help, who are sundowning with dementia? I don't
4: know the data on that, so I don't want to speak about it. But I would okay. say that it would be it would be wise overall to make sure um, that a person is getting a lot of light during the day, during the daytime hours, making sure they're outside and getting sunlight, which is our best source of light. And um, that way, perhaps it can decrease somewhat the symptoms later on, but. I don't know if if light therapy has actually been tried with Alzheimer's
2: patients or not. Can you just give us some last thoughts about the impact of the lack of sleep on caregivers?
4: Yeah, so that can be really tough because um, they're going to be woken up at various hours during the night, might also start experiencing difficulty, falling back asleep, So, it's just going to be really important for caregivers to try their very best, if possible, maybe to take turns with um, another caregiver so that they can get a bit of a break, um, not be the only one that's always responding. I mean, we know that's not always possible in all situations, but if it is, it would be helpful. Um, And making sure that they do take the opportunity to get into bed when um, the one they're caring for is also going to sleep if possible. It's m- very much in a way like when caring for babies that then you, know, you sleep a lot of the time when they're sleeping um, because it can become very sleep-depriving if you're up half of the night and um, can obviously affect the person's mood and overall health.
2: Thank you so much, Dr. Silverman. This has been very, very helpful. How can people contact you or uh, get your book, more information?
4: So my website is um, www.sleeppsychology.com. And with two P's in the middle, so sleep psychology, I'm located in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And um, my book is called The Insomnia Workbook, as you mentioned, and it's available on Amazon or at local bookstores. So... I just hope that people really try their very best to improve their sleep because it's so very important in,
2: yeah. in all aspects of our health. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, and actually, that is my takeaway for today, and, and that is, as a caregiver, you're critical to everyone around you, and so you must become a priority. Sufficient sleep for you is just as important as good sleep for the children and the other adults in your life. That way you'll have the inner strength and mental stamina to continue caring for others. You've Absolutely. been listening to quote, co- Oh, Dr. Phil Silverman, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you. Remember to keep a smile on the hearts of those for whom you care. You have to make yourself a priority. At some point, you've got to go to the top of your to-do list. This is Dr. Merrill asking you to do just one small thing for yourself today. Just one thing. I want to hear what you've done, so share it with me on Dr. Merrill at caughtbetweengenerations.com. I love this time with you. Remember to take really good care of yourself. See you next
1: week. Thank you for tuning in to Caught Between Generations with Dr. Merrill Griff. Our program is live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We hope to see you here next week.